All right, so um, we talked about the gospel and gospel centrality, kind of set a foundation for us. In um, the next uh, two hours, two and a half hours or so, we're going to be looking at sort of um, gospel-driven leadership. And so where I want to start is really with some issues of character and temperament. We'll look at some kind of personal rhythms for um, gospel-centered leadership, and then we'll um, get even more specific to look at skills um, and some kind of you know, technique, so to speak. But before we do that, we have to talk about temperament and disposition because skills without the right disposition, skills without the right character is really kind of the shortcut to pragmatism, which is, you know, really killing a lot of evangelical churches. So, uh, you know, you could be the most gifted or most skilled uh, leader your church has, but if you do not have a heart for Jesus, if you do not have a, a character that is approaching Christ-likeness, um, it actually, in the long run, does not benefit your church at all, um, you know, regardless of your skills. So um, I want to give you, starting off, um, four rhythms of the leadership life that, driven by grace, um, can help you stifle the temptation to justification by success or justification by your performance or your approval ratings uh, within the church and put you back kind of in the place of experiencing God's uh, true power. Uh, call these uh, four rhythms for gospel-centered leadership. Um, the first one is meditating on your qualifications. Meditating on your qualifications. Um, certainly this applies for those of you who um, are aspiring to, uh, to eldership in your church, that you would look at the, the biblical qualifications for eldership. I think it applies to anyone pursuing any kind of um, role of leadership um, teaching, counseling, discipling in a church. Um, you can look at the biblical qualifications for eldership and, and, and see uh, points of aspiration there as, um, as it more generally sort of approximates what Christian maturity looks like. But you can also look at things like the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, as sort of a, a corresponding list. And in fact, if, you know, the close eye will notice there's a lot of overlap between the, the qualifications for eldership and, um, and the fruit of the Spirit. And see, um, essentially, um, I don't know, a measuring stick. There are some ways this can go wrong, and I'll talk about that shortly in a moment as well. Um, but this is the aspiration that we ought to have as, as Christian leaders. You'll notice, for instance, let me just talk about the biblical qualifications for eldership or for pastors, um, and then we can make application to that more widely. Um, you'll notice that as you look at those qualifications, it says very little about skills or um, giftedness in the, in the way that we often talk about giftedness. I'll just read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. We have parallel um, qualifications in Titus 1 and um, in 1 Peter chapter 5 as, as well. And when you take those things in composite, you notice, first of all, that an eagerness to ministry does not itself equate to 
a qualification. A sense of calling doesn't equate to a qualification. Skills and gifts do not authenticate qualification. In fact, the only skill set uh, mentioned, if you can call it that, in, this, in the list is able to teach. Um, the only thing that approximates kind of a, um, a gift, so to speak, is able to teach. The rest of those things are character issues, reputation issues, their spiritual dispositions, their qualities of the person. It says nothing about being a, a dynamic personality. It says nothing about vision casting. It says nothing about being a catalytic anything. Those aren't bad things, but they aren't in themselves qualifications to leadership. Meditating on your qualifications more than your accomplishments um, puts you uh, more in dependency on, on the Lord, actually, in the midst of your leadership, which is sort of the, um, the right place to be, to become more Christ-like. We all have sort of cautionary tales, either from our own life or just from the headlines, of folks who crashed and burned because they were you know, sustaining themselves or coasting on, on their giftedness. And in fact, many times where um, churches get into trouble with uh, allowing uh, toxic leadership and abuse and, um, and, and just generally disqualified people um, from going on so long, the reason we don't pull the plug on, on leadership like that is because we kind of look at the results of their skills and the results of their dynamism and the results of their giftedness, so to speak. We elevate gifts over, um, over qualifications. Um, sometimes there will be some who will say that um, in some way their qualification is their disqualification. So the very fact that I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, terrible in some of these areas actually makes me a, a more uh, authentic person or, or something like that. Um, and sometimes we hear that language in the guys who have kind of made a mess of their ministries who are eager to jump back into ministry. It's like, now that I've really been hobbled, I can really, you know, reach people. They don't give time, actually, to see these qualifications rebuilt in their own life. The, the call to us, or the, you know, the question for us, whether you're in eldership or not, is essentially to look at a list like this and ask yourself, honestly, do a gut check, um, how am I doing in these areas? Um, to look at the fruit of the Spirit and, and, and ask yourself, are these, is this fruit being... Uh, nurtured in my own life? Am I more gentle today than I was two years ago, three years ago? Am I kinder today than I was three years ago? One of the hardest assignments we give our, um, our ministry residents at Liberty Baptist, uh, and they do, you know, they, like you guys, they read books, they write papers, they, you know, they have assignments, that sort of thing. Um, over the 18 months that we're together, the hardest assignment that they have said <laughs> routinely is they have to um, interview their wives. Um, not all of them are married, but the ones who are, they, they interviewed their wives and asked them um, to essentially rate them according to the biblical qualifications for eldership. Um, how am I doing in self-control? How am I doing in not being quarrelsome? How am I doing in leading the household? How am I doing... Um, you know, and you have to ask them, like, how, why, and it has to be a personal conversation, because a lot of those guys, they just want to kind of come home and, like, you know, pass a sheet over and say, you know, Jared wants that, if you could fill that out. You know, like, no, you actually have to have a conversation with her. You have to ask her these questions. How am I doing in these areas? And um, a lot of times, um, their wives are actually very, uh, um, you know, most of the time, their wives are very gracious and actually 
score them higher than they would have thought that they would have. Um, and, and sometimes when, when their score is not so high, they, they know, you know actually that it's an area. There's usually not a surprise per se unless it's on the, on the positive end. But it's a hard conversation to have. Uh, a corollary conversation, um, I think, for those in, in leadership positions um, is not just for like your spouse or your roommate or those who know you best. Hey, how am I doing in these areas? Have you seen growth in me in these areas? But to ask those that you supervise, those that you lead, those that um, report to you, um, essentially, how am I doing in the character of Christ? Um, you know, yes, I want to know how effective I am as a leader. Do you feel managed or supervised well by me? But do you feel cared for by me? Um, what's the residual impact of, of, of knowing me? Like, what's in the wake of my leadership? Do you feel steamrolled? You know, do you, when I leave the room and, 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 and the rest of you are in here, do you kind of have to, like, you know, catch your breath, you roll your eyes at each other, you know, all those sorts of things. Like, I, I need to know, am, 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 am I a burdensome person to follow or to report to? Uh, um, because what are we in this for, right? I mean, it's, the church isn't a business as much, you know, as we can um, improve and as much as we pursue excellence and as much as professionalization helps us in, uh, in the 21st century, um, we're in the business of soul care and um, shepherding. And so if we're able to build something big and shiny and not actually um, help people see Jesus, especially those who are in our immediate orbit, uh, we're just wasting our time. And we're wasting their time as well. Now, there is a way this sort of thing, meditating on your qualifications, um, can, be, um, can drift into legalism. Um, which is essentially to say, if you're constantly measuring yourself, uh, you're always going to see yourself falling short, and it can very easily lead you into a kind of despair or into a kind of, um, you know, stunted discipleship, in which you're focusing on your performance or your production as your validation. Remember principle three: um, your validation is in the gospel, not on your performance or your production. At the same time, this can be a gospel-driven self-evaluation. Uh, for this reason, um, these qualities, these qualifications are things that only the Holy Spirit can build in you through closeness with Christ. Um, they're, very, they're, they're not skill sets that you can just get better at detached from Jesus. Um, you, you can figure out how to preach um, entertaining or engaging sermons apart from intimacy with Christ. You just have to be somewhat dramatic, be a good communicator a good turner of phrases, all those sorts of things. You can be a quote-unquote good preacher. I mean, not in all the ways that ultimately matter, but you can be a good preacher, a listenable preacher, without really even knowing Jesus at all. You can be a good leader, uh, at least in terms of your skills and your aptitudes and all those sorts of things. Um, you're being able to, to um, you know, assimilate people and all those sorts of things without having intimacy with Christ at all. And so when we look at these qualifications, gosh, self-control. And you know, some of these things that have such impact um, when we're not around people at all, right? I mean, if character is who you are when nobody's looking. Some of these things that, uh, that show the real us. These are only things that you know, can be sort of you know, blossomed in our heart through, um, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So they make us lean into, as I said it, um, causes us to have a greater dependency on God. If we're going to see these things in our lives, 
um, we have to lean into the gospel, into the power of the gospel, because we can't sort of muster this up ourselves, self-control, um, n- not being quarrelsome, all those sorts of things. Um, second uh, rhythm, fast from being needed. Fast from being needed. Uh, there is a consistent dynamic in a lot of churches where the leaders supply the ministry and the people who are not leaders supply the need for the ministry, sort of a, a top-heavy uh, organism. And what this often does is create a, a, a deformed kind of religious codependence. And it often happens from the bottom up where some feel like, so for instance, if you're, in, uh, if you're a counselor and you do you know, counseling, um, you've probably encountered this if you've done it for any length of time. The, pers- the counselee begins to feel like they can't get through the week. Like if you took a week off or if you went on a vacation or something, suddenly they're, they have a moment of panic because they can't lean on you. They can't reach out to you. You've become a lifeline for them. It's beyond simply someone who provides counsel and encouragement and support. You have become like the drug that they need or the medication in some way that they need. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't have to be in the counseling situation, but those who feel like, how are we going to survive? I, so there's a codependence that works from the bottom up. But we're looking down as, as suppliers of ministry, as ministry leaders, there's a codependence that can occur from the top down as well. I need to feel needed. I, I don't know who I am if I don't have someone looking to me for help. I'm, I have caregiving so wound up in my own heart that if I, if I don't have a relationship like that or if I'm not active um, you know, f- for a, you know, a certain period of time, I begin to have a crisis of identity. I begin to actually you know, doubt things and um, it actually you know, throws me off because my identity is so wrapped up in this. I, I didn't realize I had this issue, um, especially in terms of equating my ministry with my own identity. Uh, I'd really made pastoral ministry an idol without knowing it um, until I believe the Lord actually was calling me away from my last pastorate and, in fact, was calling me into to work at this seminary, uh, which, you know, to some, especially outside kind of the seminary world, um, it may sound like a prestigious job. I felt like I'm, 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 you know, taking something less than, and I worried about what everybody would say about it. And if I'm not a pastor, well, any, I mean, I, I really was panicking in, in some sense. You know, I was publishing books and things. I remember calling some friends in the publishing world, you know, thinking like, well, anybody ever want to read any, any of my books again if I'm not a pastor? You know, I was like so concerned. I mean, there's so many like, you know, lines of, of discombobulation. And then I just, I had built up so much of my own identity in being a pastor and being a small church advocate and being a rural ministry advocate and being a New England ministry advocate. And I was leaving all of that and I just saw pieces of myself kind of disintegrating, right? Now, like the end of Infinity War or something. It's like suddenly it's like, whoosh, it's like, no, how do I get reconstituted? Uh, and it was, it, was, it was really hard. And if you had asked me beforehand, right, if someone had said, hey, have you made pastoral ministry an idol? I'd be like, no way, are you kidding me? Like, I wrote a whole book on that, you know, I'm an expert, I'm an expert on that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, man, I'm at a small church and, you know, I'm in a rural place. Like, how could I have made it an idol? I'm not one of those, you know, mega church guys or whatever. Um, and then I discovered, oh, wow, when I, you know, believe the Lord was asking me to set it aside, I was like, oh, actually, I've really equated who I am so much with, with what I do uh, and with these things. Um, and so it, it, it created almost a kind of codependency downward. I liked being the pastor. 
I liked being needed uh, in that way. Um, the good news um, was that after a couple of years of kind of disorientation, um, I got really used to not being a pastor and really enjoying sleeping at night and um, <laughs> all sorts of things, not knowing everything going on in the church. Uh, um, was recently asked to be, uh, if, if I wanted to be considered to be added to the elder board at our church. So we've been in our church about eight years or so. So I, I've been in there, you know, seven and a half years or so without being a pastor. And when they asked me, like the conversation my wife and I had was like, are you ready to know things you didn't know and see things you didn't see and be engaged in conversations that you otherwise would not have been engaged in? And, and we decided that we were ready for that. But it's just a different, it's a different level. And I, I now have to be on guard too, because when you're a part of conversations you weren't a part of before, when you know things that you didn't know before, there's something in me that wants to kind of rush in and be kind of the, you know, triage everything. And um, I have to, you know, think to myself, is that, is that for their sake or is it because I get a rush from being this person or this guy? Do you get a rush from being needed? Do you need to feel needed? It's good for us to take a break from that. Um, it's good to be a, a meter of needs. It's good to be an encourager. It's good to be a counselor. It's good to be a caregiver. Those are all gracious things. But to keep us from idolatry in those areas, to keep us from a codependency top down, we have to uh, fast every now and again from being needed. Remember our own dependency on the Lord. There's a variety of ways um, where you can resist the development of codependency. Um, I'll give you a list. Some of these apply... Uh, more to those in the pastoral office. Um, there may be some application, but then others, I think, would apply to um, a wider ver uh, variety of leaders as well. Um, in, in, in churches that are being established, um, work as, as quickly as you can, as quickly as is wise, to establishing a plurality of elders, or at the very least, a leadership team. Release into ministry that leadership team or the plurality of elders that you have. Uh, assuming they meet you know, the biblical qualifications. In, in, in other words, um, diffusing the weight, so to speak. This is one of the beauties of plurality um, of, of eldership, is not just the multiple voices and perspectives that you get, uh, but also the ability to have multiple shoulders under, under a particular weight. Um, observes, uh, um, observe a Sabbath and take a day off every week. Um, if you have vacation time or sabbatical policy or other means, um, you know, taking time away from the church to reset, to refresh. Uh, if you worry about the people in the church not surviving, if you're gone, that's kind of a red flag of uh, kind of idolatry. Um, and it may be actually true. <laughs> uh, it may be that your system is so set up that if you're gone for a suspended period of time, to and that's a... Um, a good indicator to you that some systems need to be reorganized and, and changed as well. But by and large, the, um, the thing that the, that the church will fall apart um, if you take a break um, is, is kind of overwrought. I think it's sometimes it, it exaggerated. Um, I, I think probably the majority of churches will survive if you take your vacation. Um, the churches will survive if you have your day off. People will survive. This is really hard, especially when, when people, um, you know, barring emergencies, I'm just talking about you know, garden variety need. Um, that person who needs you, uh, if you take, you know, a day off, they'll still need you the, the day you get back to work. <laughs> um, they'll still be there. So 
Um, if you've reached the stage of qualifying for a sabbatical, if you're in a ministry position that, um, that allows that uh, to take a sabbatical, if you're in a church that does not have a sabbatical policy for um, pastors, um, really consider how you might be involved in initiating that. Um, I had the privilege of introducing that to our church when I wasn't a pastor, so it, it, it actually was somewhat more effective because it didn't seem self-seeking. Now as a pastor, I'm, I'm a lay elder, so I'm not paid um, at all, so I think I still could do some things like this. Um, but essentially, I was introducing as a lay person, as a, as a church member, a sabbatical policy to the church, and we introduced it not just for full-time pastors, but full-time um, ministry leaders. So this would include, uh, you know, children's ministry director, um, our director of equipping and assimilation, who is a, a, a dear lady at the time, um, any full-time ministry, um, you know, person in the church uh, qualified for our sabbatical policy. Um, and it's just our way of saying, like, this is heavy stuff. Um, church work isn't like, uh, um, you know, other work. I know other work can be, I mean, the closest corollary, I think, is um, and, and there's data you know, uh, to kind of back this up. The helping professions, the, the so-called helping professions, have the largest sort of uh, burnout rate, dropout rate, and rates of depression and anxiety. And those include like first responders, of course, those in the military, um, you know, um, nurses and doctors, especially in trauma centers or in ER, uh, police officers, those sorts of things. Well, clergy are often listed in, that, in those helping professions um, I think probably even, you know, um, certain counselors and uh, um, uh, mental health, you know, therapists and things as well. But if you're on that, that, at that kind of level, um, it's not just physically taxing to work, you know, and, and certainly it's not as physically taxing as, so, as a quote-unquote blue-collar job, but there's a spiritual weight, there's an anxiety. Paul, in fact, lists, when he begins listing his, his sufferings, his hardships for Christ, it's rather... Uh, it's funny, but it's not funny. But at the end, he's like, uh, you know, in that list, he's like, I was shipwrecked. Uh, you know, they tried to you know, throw rocks and kill me and all these sorts of things. And then he's like, at the end, he goes, and on top of that, there's the anxiety I feel for all the churches. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, man, that's like, he lists that as a hardship. And if you've been in a ministry position, um, you feel that. Laying awake at night, staring at the ceiling because you're carrying the weight of responsibility. And, and in part, that comes with being a good leader as well, you know. Um, if you didn't have that weight, if you didn't feel that weight, in some ways we'd have to wonder, like, do you care? Or like, uh, are you just a sociopath, right? That sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> on one level, it's like it's, it's good to feel that. At the same time, we need to, um, in non-self-serving, this is the danger, especially if you're a pastor, sometimes this is really hard to talk about, especially with church people, because it sounds, you can sound like you're complaining, you can sound like you're whining, you can sound like you're asking for special treatment. You ask for a sabbatical, and you have people in your church who are like, well, I don't get a sabbatical, and I work hard, right? You know, uh, I've been at, at my job for you know, 20 years, and I've never had significant time off, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was prepared, when we introduced this policy at our church, I was prepared for all of those things, actually. And um, you know, I had like rejoinders to every potential rebuttal. I wanted to say, like, okay, you don't get it, but if somebody offered it to you, you'd take it, wouldn't you? Or, or you'd at least love your boss to say, you know, Jim, you've been here 20 years. I'd love to give you a month off. Every, you know. uh, even if you wouldn't take it out of pride, you'd love to be offered. You know, the fact that we don't get that doesn't mean we shouldn't offer it to our spiritual caregivers um, and you know, give them the opportunity to have that or not. Um, thankfully, those rejoinders did not come up at our church. I was actually really proud. Um, it, it passed unanimously. But in any event, sabbaticals are helpful. 
And if you're interested in the longevity, that's the thing. You know, one of the concerns too is like you're, you're you know, given, um, you know, you're making your guy lazy or something if you give him significant time off at certain key milestones. Uh, what you're actually doing is investing in their health so that they'll be at your church longer, assuming you want them to be there for a long time. Uh, and most churches want their pastor to be there a long time. Um, you're investing in their loving the church, enjoying being the church. You're investing in their joy and actually in their endurance and their longevity there. So um, let's see. Um, share your duties. I have here share your preaching duties, but outside the pastoral office, um, make sure that you're you know, not the only person who can do what you do, that you're training others or, or helping others um, to do it alongside you and to do it when you're out and those sorts of things. Um, get serious about leadership development and replication. Um, here's a big one. Put your family's health above your church's expectations. Uh, I think this is a hard one for everybody, um, but certainly pastors and aspiring pastors should really remember this. Um, Christ will be responsible for his bride. He has called you um, to lay your life down for your bride, pastor. Um, he has laid down his life for his. So love the church, love the church with all your guts. But um, remember, in the end, you can always get another church if you have to. Um, you should not get another wife, right? Um, so put your family's health above your church's expectations. Uh, be good at delegating. Um, this is kind of a contextual. I don't know if it would apply to everybody, um, but it applied to me at my last pastorate, so I've included it here. Don't feel like you need to attend every church program or function. Um, when I was a small town pastor, and especially before we added plurality of eldership, um, there was just sort of the you know, built-in expectation that the pastor is sort of like the mayor of the, of the village or something, and you're there for every ribbon cutting and every tea and every whatever. And I just thought, man, if I was at every single thing, my family would hardly ever see me, and I just would be so burnt out. And I had to figure out when to kind of, um, you know, what to prioritize and what not to. Um, everybody's looking for a savior who isn't Jesus. <laughs> um, and sometimes they'll want that savior to be you. And we have to figure out how to point people to Jesus to be meaningfully present and gracious in people's lives without becoming a functional Messiah. Um, maybe the pastoral um, office thing doesn't resonate with you, but if you're called to counseling, or even just personal discipleship, this is still a caution for you not to become a, a functional Messiah in somebody's life. And being regularly unproductive is how you maintain normal productivity without burnout. So fast from being needed. Um, there's something else I like to, uh, within this category, uh, that I like to um, champion. Um, I, I call it RBM, to mind your RBM, rest, boundaries, margin. If you mind your rest, boundaries, and margin, uh, it'll work against um, uh, burnout. Um, and even, um, I think, um, some of the things, you know, because sin kind of flourishes in the busy heart, in the distracted heart, in the anxious heart, um, it could even forestall or eradicate uh, moral failings and disqualification. Um, so, certain, so rest you understand, you need to have a regular rhythm of Sabbath in your life. Uh, um, appropriate boundaries that you're available to people, but remember you're not Jesus. He's available 24-7 to any person who wants to call on him. Uh, you're not Jesus. So you don't need to be available 24-7, right? So, you know, especially um, if we're talking about non-emergency type 
um, situations, um, it's okay to be disconnected from time to time. It's okay to have certain boundaries uh, on certain relationships. Some of you understand this on your family level. There's certain people in your families you just think, you know, I just, I gotta draw a line there. It doesn't mean I don't love them. There's just, there's some, you know, toxic stuff there. And until that gets worked out, we can't be reconciled. I can forgive them, but we can't have the same relationship. There's, there's people in, in, in your you know, um, uh, church life or relational life also, maybe you should um, create certain boundaries with as well. I remember just one of the first ones for me was, was actually having start and stop times on, on meetings. I, I, I really want people to like me, and I don't like conflict especially, so there's this people-pleasing thing in me, and I want people to see me as available. Um, and I remembered in kind of the early days of ministry when people would set an appointment to meet um, and we'd be together for three hours or so and, you know, um, you know, half the day is gone and I, I've got, you know, things to do. And now I'm feeling actually resentful of them because they've, um, and really I should be kind of blaming myself for not having an end time to the meeting. So it was just a simple boundary of saying, hey, could we meet from three to four, right? That's when we're going to meet rather than saying, let's meet at three. Um, because some people, if you've got, you know, um, if they think you have all the time in the world, they'll take it. Um, and they don't necessarily need it. Now, uh, again, if they do need it, if it is someone who's like they're in a grief, you know, um, situation, a crisis of some kind, um, you know, you have to be discerning here. But that was just a simple thing for me that I, it took me a while to figure that out. For you, you're like, well, of course you would have a time limit on. For me, it was like, huh, I should actually put a stop time on these things. Uh, I also figured out how to do visitation at other people's homes. It's easier to leave other people's homes than it is to get them to leave your office. Pro tip for those of you who are pastoring. It's just easier to say, I, I have to go somewhere, or I have to go to my next appointment or whatever. It's easier to do that than to say, time's up, time to leave. You know? um, it's just nicer to, to leave someplace. Um, uh, and then margin, which is basically don't overschedule yourself even in your allotted work time. Um, a, schedule unfilled work time. In other words, uh, flex time in your day. So if you're the kind of person like, I'm going to have every hour of my day, there's something in it, you're actually over-scheduling yourself, even if you're going to end at 5 p.m. or whatever it is. Allow some margin in that day to, for things that run longer than you expected, to catch your breath in between you know, things. Um, you know, have some time, which um, you know, if you're in ministry, so like for me, when I would have that you know, margin built in, um, when things are running over, now I've got an hour or, or what have you at the end of the day that things could fall into and I can still get home on time rather than, hey, I'm sorry, honey, things were running long. I, I, I know I'm, I'm going to miss dinner. Like, no, I actually built into my day the hard stop at 4 p.m. knowing I, was, I plan to leave at 5 p.m. so that if things have to run into it. And then if I get everything done and I've got that hour, now I can do something else that I enjoy. It's still work time. I can work on my sermon a little bit more. I can read. I can pray. You know, um, I can call somebody that you know, I haven't contacted. Just it's, it's un, unscheduled work time. Build in some margin into your life uh, as well so you're not overscheduled. Um, now, this rhythm is gospel-driven or, or, or can be gospel-centered because only in the confidence of the gospel can we relinquish the fear of man that usually drives our, um, our disobedience in these areas. And we can relinquish the rush of being needed in order to rest uh, the rhythm can be gospel-driven because only in the humility of the gospel can we embrace our smallness and be okay with it. Uh, we can embrace our creatureliness and be okay with that. 
when we um, are more in touch with Christ, um, we, this, the need to be impressive is diminished in us. Um, and, and on one sense, it's normal um, to, for, you know, to want everyone to like you, right? I mean, it'd be abnormal if you wanted everyone to dislike you, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't mean to oversell that point. Um, but the more in touch I am with Christ, the less devastating this, it is to me when you don't like me. Um, or if you don't like me to the level that I want you to, right? Uh, if you could take or leave me, I'm not devastated by that, right? <laughs> I can just be like, well, you know, I'm not for everybody, but I am for Jesus. And that's, you know, um, but if I'm not, if I'm not staring at the glory of Christ and I see his full pardon for me and his full embrace of me, man, I really am addicted to how, uh, how I'm, you know, faring among the congregation, which what you think about me gets so outsized in my own heart and mind. Um, okay, rhythm number three, um, speaking of um, getting close to Christ, commune with Jesus as a real person. Commune with Jesus as a real person. Um, I think so many of us, we, we sort of settle, uh, and there's understandable reasons for this, but we settle for a relationship with the idea of Jesus. We have a relationship with Christianity. Um, and, and, and the good news is our salvation is not contingent on our religious feelings or uh, the degree of our spirituality. Um, one of the, you know, my favorite things that Jesus assured us was that we could have faith the size of a mustard seed <laughs> and we receive all of the riches of his goodness. Um, so long as it's a real faith, you can have a small faith so long as it's real. And it can be beat up, it could be battered, it could be a shred of something, it could be a mustard seed size, and you receive all the riches of his grace. Um, I, I love that, I love that. And yet, there are more wonders, there is more grace in the fountain um, when we actually see that Jesus is really alive. Um, we, we can't see him yet, but he can be seen. We will see him. It, it, it won't be some hologram uh, it won't be some symbolic sort of experiential acid trip sort of thing. We're going to see the real Jesus. And he is somehow, I don't know how it works, but he is somehow embodied, glorified. He's in his glorified body, but he's taking up space in heaven, physical space. Uh, I don't know if you ever think about this, but like Elijah's there, we assume, right? And Enoch is there. Uh, we sometimes think of heaven as sort of a thinner reality than this world where we can touch things, but heaven is actually a thicker reality. It's hyperspatial. There's more dimensions there than there are here. And so it can easily uh, subsume or encompass the, the four-dimensional world that we live in. Therefore, physical space um, you know, can be you know, occupied there. So all of that to say... Um, Christ is, is a real man. I mean, he's really alive. And this, I, this makes me like, I mean, I understand this isn't like radical, you know, third level theology here, but um, it is for me when I'm praying. <laughs> I mean, when I'm praying, like to remember like, oh, he's, he's, he's real. I'm not, because so often when I'm praying, I just feel like I'm throwing words up into outer space, you know, it just, cause I, because I can't see him and I, I don't hear an audible voice. And so it just, it can sound. It can feel like I'm, you know, sending my letter to Santa or something like that. 
And, it's, and so it's easier to get distracted when I'm praying, or it's easier to go into prayerlessness, actually. Um, it seems less uh, um, efficient than just reading my Bible. There's something physical, I can learn something, I've got to take away, whatever it is. And so I have to constantly refocus and remember that Jesus is a real person. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses face to face like one would a friend. I, I don't know what that feels like, but my heart almost has this ancient memory of how, of how that feels. And I think it's going to be reconnected on the day. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. We will know as we are known. I think my wiring's going to get re, you know, resituated, reconstituted in that moment, and it'll be like, um, it won't be the revelation of something true that you didn't know was true. It's going to be the fulfillment of hope, like you know it's true, but then when it actually comes true, so to speak, when you see Christ face to face. You, you'll have more of a feeling like, I knew it all along. I knew it. Like that kind of hope, that kind of knowing. Um, th- there, is, there is no substitute for intimacy with Jesus. Um, and we come up with a thousand different substitutes in our, in our daily life, in our ministry life, but there is no substitute for knowing Jesus. And the impact, just um, even the, the passive impact on other people, of being someone who knows Jesus is almost incomparable. So it's not necessarily what somebody's saying to you. I've got the, you know, the wisdom that's going to, you know, or just the clever wording, right, that makes you go, oh, that's interesting. But just the disposition, the quality, the, the, the experience of knowing Jesus has this radiating uh, impact on those around us, you know it when you're around Jesus-y people. And it's not always because they're telling you Jesus-y things, you know, big wise things or, you know, they have those things, but sometimes it's just the way they treat you and the way they react and the way they listen and the way they care, the way that they're present. Um, the most Jesus-y guy I've ever met is Ray Ortland. I don't know if you know um, his, uh, that name or know of Ray Ortland. Um, pastor in the Nashville area, scholar. I mean, he's been around for a while. Um, I had the privilege of meeting him when I was in Nashville, Tennessee. We planted churches in the same year. Um, I didn't know him before that. I knew of him. I knew his name. I knew him as primarily as a scholar. Um, and I was looking for a mentor. I was trying to plant this kind of gospel-centered missional church thing, highly influenced by like the Mars Hill phenomenon in Seattle. And um, I thought, I want to do that here. And there weren't a lot of resources at that time, um, even networks and, and things, at least in my area, there weren't. Um, it was kind of, you know, six flags over Jesus. If you, you know, there are lots of people to tell you how to do church like that. I didn't want to do church like that. I'd come out of that. And so I went online and just Googled, like, Gospel Center Church Nashville. I thought, who's doing this and, you know, can I find them? And there was an advert, uh, it was a static page. I remember it was like a wood grain background. It wasn't even a website. It was just one page. And it was Ray Ortland is planting a manual church in Nashville. Uh, if you're interested in knowing more about the church, you can get coffee with Ray. And there was a little thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I want coffee with Ray. So I sent an email and I was like, it basically was, I don't want to come to your church, but uh, <laughs> I'd love to have coffee with you. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting in the Cool Springs 
um, Starbucks, and it's my first experience with the Ray Ortland eye contact. I don't know if you've any one of you, if y'all have ever met him or talked to him. He has this very unnerving. He's like looking into your soul as he's talking to you. It's very like you don't know where to look. You know, you kind of feel like you know how like dogs don't make eye contact. You know, they don't. They're unnerved by it. I was the dog. I was like. <laughs> I don't want to be rude and not look at you when you're talking, but I feel like you got some kind of laser beam thing going on here. Uh, I got used to it after a while, after I got to know him, but the first time I just, it was very discombobulating. Ray, he, I, I, half of him is in the other world. He, he's just an, a, I don't know. He's just, he, there's sometimes I feel like he's an android. There's other times, <laughs> there's other times where I think like he, he just stepped out of the third heaven. I, I, don't, I don't understand. Um, but there was one time, we started this little group, we called it the Pastor's Gospel Group, um, and it was me and him and, and my right-hand guy at, the, at our church plant, another guy we had you know, kind of brought on. And, uh, it was basically, it was an excuse to sit around Ray and just listen to Ray for an hour and a half. And I was organizing it, Ray was leading it, and we got together one day, and it was in Ray Orland's study, and he came and he sat down. We were just sitting in these chairs, he came and he sat down. And uh, normally we would go th- you know, through things like John Wesley's accountability questions and different things. And this day he sat down and he said, I want to tell you about my friend Jesus. Which is such a weird way to open a thing with a group of pastors. Because we were all just like, well, we all know Jesus, Ray. You know, I don't... <laughs> okay. And he started describing Jesus. And he said some like, crazy things, things that are not biblical at all. Um, not necessarily unbiblical, just extra biblical. Things that were just obviously you know, hyperbole. Um, he said something like, Jesus is 10 feet tall, you know, and we're kind of like, mm, I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know what the average height of a Palestinian Jew was in the first century, but I don't think like 10 feet in the, in the ballpark. Um, but then he would say things like, um, he loves children. If a child, you know, he, he'll bend down and stoop to be at the level of a child if they interrupt him when he's speaking. And uh, he laughs really easily. And he just started describing Christ. And there were things that were obviously connected to biblical portraits of Jesus. There were things that were obviously kind of fanciful in it. He wasn't meaning it as some kind of revelation from a, a guru or anything like that. But the room changed. And there was something about this man telling us about his friend Jesus that even in the outrageous things, like he's 10 feet tall and whatever, it was like Jesus was in the room, and we we and I know I didn't imagine this. Um, I've had you know maybe I'm not a charismatic person um, in any sense of the word probably, but in terms of the spiritually charismatic sense, uh, I'm a continuationist, but I'm not you know charismatic. I have had maybe two or three experiences in my life that I would consider sort of like supernatural type things in my life, um, and this was one of them. Something happened in the room. There was an anointing of some kind. And I know I didn't imagine it because my friend David, um, you know, 15 years later, I, I, you know, I would ask him about it. I remember once he was at my house in Kansas City, and I said, do you remember that day Ray came in and said, let me talk to you about my friend Jesus? And I was like, man, I felt like something, like the Holy Spirit fell down in that room. And he goes, I, I, it, I know exactly what you mean. It happened to me too. So I know it wasn't an isolated thing. But that event and other times, like it doesn't have to be some kind of ecstatic experience, just having breakfast with him, I would walk away going, this guy actually knows Jesus. Like we all know Jesus, I understand that, like I said, but he's someone who, I feel like he had breakfast with a pre-breakfast with Jesus that morning before I got to him. And what it did was it was a good kind of empowering conviction. I walked away going, 
I know I'm not there yet, and I don't know if I will be, but by God's grace, I want to be someone that when others walk away, they go, Jared actually knows Jesus. He, he's actually friends with Jesus. That is the bar to which we should aspire. That we are so close to Christ, just the residual impact of it. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not up on the stage trying to move people emotionally or whatever it is. But just the very fact that we are close to Christ means that we are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, which means people have the aroma of Christ when they're in our presence. What a thing to aspire to. The right kind of being impressive. Which is one thing I take issue with. Ray once said, you can be impressive or you can be known, but not both. And I take issue with it. I understand what he means, which is basically you can try to impress everybody or you can be known for who you are, a sinner, ordinary, messy, what have you. Uh, the further along I go in my spiritual life, the more impressive I find the people who want to be known, <laughs> the people who are authentic and real. I find that impressive. So I think there's a, there's a flaw in the, in the phrase, as it were. Uh, okay, rhythm number four, returning to the gospel for your validation. Returning to the gospel for your validation, which is, of course, um, a corollary to the third principle of gospel centrality. What is it that leaders find, uh, too often find their confidence in? It is typically some vision of success, some vision of our own, of our own performance or our own production, our approval rating with a congregation, spiritual feelings, um, something achievable, something measurable in that sense. We have to have that by the process of sanctification and just to the ups and downs of ministry leadership, in a way kind of, I don't know, flogged out of us in, uh, in some sense. The, the longer you go, the more highs and lows you experience, the more that you realize the only constant that we have is the approval of God in Christ. That we cannot be tied to how things are going because as, you know, as soon as they're going well, they're going to be going poorly. Um, and so it keeps us from despair when things aren't going well. It keeps us from pride when things are going well. Um, I think um, now, I didn't have this really mindset then, at least not in, in its entire, uh, entirety. Now, I think one of the best things that ever happened to me was planting a church that, that failed. And, and I remember actually, so I planted around the same time as Ray. Um, he had uh, basically a handful of old people in his church. And I still had enough of uh, attractionalism in me that we would go and visit at their church. My church plant met on Sunday evenings. We actually met in Emmanuel Church's building. Um, and so Sunday mornings we would go and just to encourage Ray and his church plant. And it's like Ray and like 12 blue-haired old ladies. And I remember going, how in the world is this? And I had all young people, right? And we had a cool name and we had a cool band and we did all the cool stuff and people stayed away from our church in droves. I could not figure out, like, why can't we get arrested, you know, doing all the stuff you're supposed to have. And I watched as Ray's just open-hearted, you know, broken-hearted reliance on Jesus uh, became a magnet. Um, it was one of the best things for me, actually. Actually, going into my next church experience, so I go from, uh, you know, suburban Nashville, a failed church plant, to this little church in Middletown Springs, Vermont, town of about 700 people, church when I got there was like 40 people and I had all the things that you shouldn't have I had the blue-haired old ladies I had all we had a pipe organ that we used we had you know it wasn't just decoration in the room 
Uh, we did three hymns with the organ and four hymns with the band. Average age of the band was probably 63. Um, I mean, we had all that we had it was the white steeple church on the town green, kind of what you would even picture, kind of hallmarky Vermont type stuff. That's what it looked like. Where I came from, they would say, you have any of that stuff, you're not going to grow a church. Well, it was somehow the failure of my suburban, cool, hip church planting experience that I think the Lord used um, to kind of give me a good stubbornness. I think I had also kind of a sinful pride about it too, but there was a good stubbornness that he gave me to say like, hey, I'm just doing this gospel stuff and I'm gonna let the Lord sort it out. Um, I've had a taste of failure. I realized even in the midst of that, God's still good. And the Lord began to send people to our church. It was like the weirdest thing in the world. Um, Our church began to grow and grow and grow. And we had all the good problems that that churches want to have. You're running out of space. You don't have space for the kids. You don't have space for parking. You don't have space for people. Are we gonna move to two services? Are we gonna, all those sorts of things all from having the ingredients that you shouldn't have. And I just learned through that kind of up and down, like the Lord is good, the Lord is faithful, the Lord is a constant. Christ's gospel is the only sure foundation through any of this stuff. And if I'm not gonna be you know, laid low by lean times or puffed up by high times, it's because I'm gonna be fixated on, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the moment I begin to get puffed up, look at what we're doing, look at what's going on. Um, I, I, I need some kind of, um, reorientation, some kind of bringing back to the finished work of Jesus. Not so that I don't enjoy, I mean, normal people are sad when sad things happen and happy when happy things happen. It doesn't mean that when your church is growing, you should be like some kind of stoic, kind of, I'm gospel-centered, uh, just, you know, this, I don't enjoy this at all, right? Like, no, no, you, you enjoy it at, to the right proportion. And when things aren't going well, you you look at it and you're not laid low or devastated because Jesus is good, but you say, hey, what are some things we can do that might, are we not reaching our community well? You're, you're asking good you know, questions. Are there things that are hindering people from you know, coming to our church? And barring all of that, if it's just, man, it's out of season. You know, the Lord has just decided in his providence, you're not going to have a big church. You're not going to have a big ministry. Um, are you going to be okay with that? Um, he'll build his kingdom. He's not going to lose. And we just have to be okay with how he wants to steward us in the midst of building his own, uh, his own holy empire. Uh, 